You're listening to audio from Crossroads Community Church, located in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. If you want to learn more about C3 and what it is about, you can visit us at c3lehigh.com. And now, for today's sermon. We're entering into a series titled The Songs of Christmas. And this, this series is really just kind of diving into the meaning of the popular Christmas songs that surround us every Christmas season. I, I, I have to ask the question where like sometimes I'm, I'll find myself in, in Starbucks or at a store of my wife's choice, Hobby Lobby. Someone in first service said that Home Depot and Hobby Lobby are the same. Can you believe the heresy? Like, I, I had to stop and correct them. I said, they are not the same. My goodness. I just, oh, Lord, forgive the sin that runs rampant, you know? But anyways, I just, I, whether you find yourself in, in Hobby Lobby or, or Starbucks or just out and about, like, I hear these songs played over and over again, and I hear people humming them or, or singing the words, and, and I have to ask the question, like, in our world do we understand what we're singing? Like, I can't help but like wonder, like in these stores where I see people walking around, like the, the question is like, do, do you know Jesus? Like, I don't think that you can hear a song that proclaims the gospel of Jesus and like not know at least about him. Like, do we understand these songs that are in our minds? Because I got to also admit that like, how many of you know, like these Christmas carols, they're catchy. Right, like they, like you'll be, you'll be like humming a Christmas carol. If you hear it in the morning, by the time you go to sleep at night, you will be humming that song all day long in your head. They're catchy, but do we understand the lyrics? And so today, the, the song that we're diving into to talk about the theological implications and biblical roots in our Christmas carols, the song that we're diving into is the one that we just sang. Heart the herald angels sing. That's going to be a little bit of our focus today as we correlate this song with the biblical roots. Hark means listen. Herald means messengers. Combine these two meanings and the song title could go something a little bit like this. Listen to the angelic messengers sing. Many of the carols that we sing, as I just discussed, have rich theological tradition. As a matter of fact, when I was in seminary, um, it, we had four levels of theology that we had to go through. And I remember in Theology 1, the first thing that we would do is we would take Christmas carols and hymns, and we would dissect them and study them and bring them back to their biblical roots. And the class, we, just, we would walk out every day after studying a hymn, and we would just kind of marvel at the theological implications that we see sing so naturally. Many of the carols that we sing, they're no exception. They're rooted in deep biblical theology. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it is written by Charles Wesley, who was an English Methodist leader and hymn writer. Little known fact, did you know that Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns? Think about that for a moment. Wesley himself wrote over 6,000 hymns. How did he have the time? 6,000 hymns. His goal in writing hymns was to teach the poor and illiterate sound doctrine. 
His brother John Wesley, a famous theologian and founder of Methodism, said that Charles Hymnal was the best theological book in existence. Some have noted that Methodism was born in song and Charles Wesley was the chief songwriter. Wesley inspired by, by the sounds of London church bells while walking to church on Christmas Day wrote Hark, a poem about a year after his conversion. And he wrote this to be read on Christmas Day. The poem first appeared in hymns and sacred poems in 1739 with the opening line, Hark, how the welkin heaven rings. In 1753, George Whitefield, a student and eventual colleague of Wesley's, adapted the poem into a song that we know today. It was Whitefield who penned the phrase, Newborn King. The first stanza describes good news of the Savior's birth. God has sent the one who will reconcile the sinner back to himself. Are those not the most beautiful lyrics? Two of you. Therefore, all the nations should rise and proclaim the good news, which is Christ the King. The next stanza speaks of the mysticism of Christ's coming and the good news in it. The final stanza tells of the accomplishment of Christ and the power that it brings. For well over 200 years, Hark the Herald Angels Sing has been a gospel-saturated anthem that continues to point people to Christ the Savior today. This song has many themes that we could dissect and dive into today. The first and most noticeable is the one that we just referenced. It's self-evident gospel theme. God and sinner reconciled. Those lyrics speak to my heart. They remind me that there was a time when I didn't know him. And because he's arrived, because he lived, because he died, because he was raised, I now can say, I know God. We could dive into the gospel theme of this message. But today we're going to be diving into two other predominant themes that really play a part in shaping this song. The first is its prophetic theme. It recognizes the prophecy that surrounds Jesus' arrival, and we're going to be touching on that today. The second self-evident theme, and I'm sure many of you have already noticed this, is the call to worship. The call to worship. When you talk about joining the choirs of heaven, I mean, come on, somebody. That is a profound theme. The first is the first theme that we're going to be studying is the prophetic fulfillment. We sing about Bethlehem a lot uh, this season of the year. Have you noticed that? There's a couple songs out there that talk about Bethlehem. Pretty much every single one. Every single Christmas carol references Bethlehem. And did you know that they don't reference Bethlehem because they needed to fill space in the lyrics? Did you know that Bethlehem, every time Bethlehem is referenced, it is almost celebrating the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus' arrival. Christ is born in Bethlehem. That was penned, not because we needed space filler. It was penned as an acknowledgement the way that God divinely works in our historical timeline. 
Another fascinating fact about this that, that just brings me so much encouragement. When you talk about the fact that the manger fulfilled prophecy, you have to understand, like before we even get into the conversation here today, and, and I'm kind of a biblical history dork, so if you don't share that same passion, bear with me for the next couple minutes. If you do share a passion in some biblical history and some fun facts, like you're my people and we should get together sometime. Amen. Everybody else, we'll pray for you. Um, but when we talk about when we talk about Bethlehem and this incredible prophecy, I, I want you to understand like just the foundation that that you stand on as a Christian. The foundation of proof is what I'm referring to. That Christ did indeed fulfill prophecy. You see, now here in today's time, in, in 2022, you and I can go to a, uh, a museum and, and we can see manuscripts, original manuscripts of the Word of God that were written in 600 BC, before Christ. And you and I can see that in great detail, that 600 years and more, but we'll start at 600 as a baseline, 600 years before Christ was born, it was predicted, it was prophesied that he would indeed be born in Bethlehem. Like, I don't care how good of a guesser you are. Like, on your best day, you're not going to circle the map and say, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And then this story gets even more complex because it says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's going to come out of Egypt, and yet he's going to be called a Nazarene. These are three different locations, and, and, and the story doesn't make sense to those who, who don't know the whole story. Like, how is Jesus going to be born in Bethlehem, out of Egypt, and he somehow is going to be called a Nazarene? This is what was prophesied 600 years before Jesus arrived. These were the prophetic words, that he would be called a Nazarene, that he would come out of Egypt, that he would be born in Bethlehem. How could anybody possibly fulfill this prophecy? And we're going to be answering that in just a few minutes. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Did you know that today that there are still people who will encounter and hear about Jesus, but it disturbs something in their spirit? The most real testimony that I've heard recently from this incredibly intelligent man, he, he comes to, to know Jesus and he's in this interview. He's a theologian, philosopher, if you will, but he's, he's doing this interview and as he talks about the validity and the story of Jesus Christ, he begins to cry. And the interviewer says, sir, why are you crying? And he said, because I've come to realize that this story is indeed true and if it is indeed true, then it terrifies me. That's someone who understands the fear of God. Not that you and I have to be afraid of God as if he's some sort of an abusive father. God is not an abuser. But this individual who said, I'm terrified, understood something that we as Americans would do very well to yield to. He understood that if indeed this story of Jesus is true, 
then it demands a response. And your response will either be those who gathered around the manger to see Christ the Savior, or your response will be like Herod, disturbed by the story. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah? Where is he born? And they responded, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the least of the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out uh, from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. King Herod asks his officials, he says, where is the king of the Jews? Where, where is he to be born? And they kind of give this response that's like, you know this. You know this because it's been written down for a few hundred years. He's in Bethlehem. They use scripture to say, listen, this, this is prophetic fulfillment. You, you know the location. The reason why that's so significant to Christians here today, please hear me, especially teenagers who are in the room today, because you're going to be challenged on this as you someday arrive at a university and you meet a professor who thinks that he knows more than God. This matters to us because there are no prophecies foretelling details about the birth of any other religious leader. Think about that for a moment. There are no prophecies that predict the birth of Muhammad. There are no prophecies that predict the birth of Joseph Smith, leader of Mormonism. There are no prophetic words that speak of Charles Russell and his birth. It's the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses. There are no prophetic words about Buddha. They do not exist. No one predicted their birth. No one predicted the place of their birth. And yet with Jesus, we have the exact location. That's why it matters to us. It gives me comfort. And I shared this with, with first service. I said, you know, it kind of gives me comfort. And like, I know this is going to sound super arrogant, so forgive me, but like, when I look at the fulfillment of prophecy and I see its validity, it, it makes me comfortable because I sit there and I go, I'm right. <laughs> like any debate that you bring to the table, I'm already just kind of like, I'm right. <laughs> like I look at the validity in, in a more humble way. It just continues to give me comfort that everything that God says he'll do, he does. There are no prophecies for telling the details of the birth of any other religious leader. And yet with Jesus, we have prophecies surrounding the entire birth. We have prophecies about his life, death, and resurrection. Prophecies written 600, 700, 800 plus years before Jesus was born, and they predicted exactly how he would be crucified. How is that possible? 
In just the first two chapters of Matthew, we see that God foretold the virgin conception of the Messiah, who would be born in Bethlehem, yet some way come out of Egypt, and also be called a Nazarene. This wouldn't make sense before Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecy, but now that we look at the historical account of Jesus' birth, we can see how it happened. When we follow the story of Christ's birth, we see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, prophecy fulfilled, that King Herod ordered a decree that all male babies be killed in an attempt to kill our Savior. So Joseph is warned about this attempt on his son's life, And he escapes to Egypt, taking refuge and safety. Prophecy fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. After Herod dies, Joseph is concerned about Herod's successor, so he establishes the family in a town where there wasn't going to be an attempt on Jesus' life. And this town is called Nazareth, fulfilling the prophecies that say, So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Born in Bethlehem, flees to Egypt for safety, and resides in Nazareth. On your best day, you could have never guessed this. Even Jesus' bloodline comes from prophecy fulfillment. In the genealogy, Uh, record in Matthew's first chapter, we discover the fulfillment of several other Old Testament prophecies. Jesus was from the line of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, Isaac, Genesis 26, Jacob, Genesis 28, Judah, Genesis 49, Jesse, Isaiah 11, and finally David. But that's not all. A search through the rest of Scripture would reveal dozens, if not more, details prophesied about the Messiah, including facts, and we could go on. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this is some of it, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey's cult, and and you see the scriptural references as they're shown on this screen, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that the betrayal would be for 30 pieces of silver, that money would be used to purchase the potter's field, that the Messiah would die a sacrificial death for us, that he would die with criminals, but his burial would be with the wealthy. He would rise from the dead. He would say certain words on the cross. He would be mocked and people would gamble for his clothes. All prophetic words written hundreds, if not a few thousand years before Jesus came to us. These are not guesses. These are extremely precise predictions. Christ is born in Bethlehem. This is a line that celebrates prophetic fulfillment. How does this apply to me? How does this apply to you and I? Well, first, the fulfillment of prophecy teaches us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the one who fulfilled these prophetic words. Therefore, the logical conclusion is he is the Messiah. He is Jesus. And I I preached this sermon a few years ago on an Easter Sunday. And I I preached during this sermon, I I preached the theme of, of the fact that like we live in a culture that continually questions everything but never lands on anything. We live in a culture that loves to question authority, that loves to question beliefs, but they never arrive at an absolute truth. 
They never land on a foundation. Question everything. Nothing is absolute, and yet they never land on something that helps them in life. I don't get it. And so we live in this generation that constantly calls into question truth, but never proves whether it's false. When it comes to Jesus, our culture does the same thing, calls into question the validity of the story. Is he really the Messiah? And yet they never land on a conclusion. Friend, if you don't have your faith put in Jesus Christ here today, I'm here to tell you that the evidence is overwhelming. It hasn't been disproved. All it would have taken for Jesus to be disproved is for them to drag his body through the streets. He hasn't risen, and they didn't because they couldn't find it. You can question Jesus. That is your prerogative. But friend, if your hypothesis is that he isn't who he said he is, then you have to prove it. And your eternity is dependent upon this. So I hope that you come to the logical conclusion of saying, this baby that was born was and still is the Messiah. Nobody on their best day, their best educated guess, could have predicted the things that he fulfilled. The fulfillment of the prophecy teaches us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Through the fulfillment of Christmas prophecies, we learn that God is faithful to his promise. Like, how incredible is God at what he does? That he would speak through people hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus' arrival, saying, this is how the Messiah is going to arrive. This is what you should look for. It should give you and I comfort to know that I don't stand on a fairy tale book. I stand on the word of God, which has validity to it, that man cannot disprove what this word has said is going to happen. As a matter of fact, if you turn on the news, you'll find out what chapter in Revelation we're in today. It gives me comfort to know that I don't stand on a book of ifs and maybes. If God said it, he'll do it. Through the fulfilled Christmas prophecies, we learn when God calls you to do something, trust in him and go all in. Like, follow me with this. Often you and I will feel a prompting, something that we should do for God. We feel conviction, something that we, could, we should lean into. And often it's a struggle for us. Friend, if you and I just simply look at the prophecies that he said he was going to accomplish through the arrival of Christ Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection, if you and I look at all that, we see that it came to pass, we have the data to say that it came to pass, then when God calls you to do something, should that not liberate us towards obedience? Like, there shouldn't be any hesitancy. Like, when God calls you, when God calls you to everybody's favorite season, waiting. Right? When you're in that season of, of trying to hear his voice, when you're in that season of, of waiting for direction, go all in. Well, pastor, how do I go all in? Continue to serve him in the waiting. If God tells you to wait, wait, be all in. 
If God tells you to leave a certain place, a certain thing, whatever it may be, and no, I, I, I just want to say this, and please, this isn't a joke, like, this doesn't mean marriage. But when God tells you to leave your profession, you know, that's been a common theme these past two to three years. And I'm going to brag on him for a moment because I know he's too humble to. But somebody that I think about is our board member and youth leader, Dennis Udicious. Felt God telling him, prompting him to leave his career, to buy a Rita's. Thank God for your Rita's. <laughs> Hallelujah. Free Rita's for everyone after the service today. Um, just see Dennis about that. Um, which, by the way, my daughters, they're like, Dad, Dennis bought a Rita's. Can we? I'll go to Walmart and pick one up, honey. But Dennis leaves his profession feeling promptings from the Lord, and, and now, and he could tell you in his own words how God has opened up doors. And just the incredible season that he's been led in. And, and I could tell you story after story after story of so many from this church, from this place of worship, who felt promptings to leave, some to stay, and how those have been fulfilled. When God calls us to do something, trust in him. Trust in him. Go all in because, friend, partial obedience is still disobedience. God tells you to wait, wait. God tells you to go all in with something, go all in. God tells you to leave something, leave. Go all in. Go all out. I want you to think about this before we move on in, in, in today's service. I want you to think about this fact. Like, how mighty must God be? that time bows before his throne. That the historical timeline kneels before God. And he sees the past, the present, and the future simultaneously. And he steps back and he says, I'm going to work all this for my purpose. And that's what we see in the manger. That's what the manger represents, is time kneeling before God Almighty and Him using time to fulfill His Word. If God calls you to something, He's already worked it out. You, you and I just have yet to experience it. Go all in. The second theme of this Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is the self-evident call to worship. It's a call to us to worship Jesus. We see this theme in lyrics such as, Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts. Proclaim. That's worship. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. That's worship. We see this theme in other lines such as glory to the newborn king. Give him glory. That's worship. And I believe that these lyrics in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, they echo Luke too because some people who, who have the anointing of pessimist, they look at a song like this and they're like, the angels didn't sing everything. Well, all right, cupcake, listen up. Like, 
Luke chapter 2, verse 13 through 14 says, Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared and the angels praising God and saying. Whether they were singing or not, okay, we can debate that all day. But the point is, is they were worshiping. They were giving Him praise to some capacity. And that does seem to be a theme of angelic hosts. So they show up in Scripture and often, sometimes they show up and there's a battle about to happen. Like when Michael shows up like, whoo, it's about to go down. In other Scriptures, you see angels showing up and they're just giving God glory. It's a part of what they do. And they were saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. He's the God of peace. The world did not know peace until we knew Jesus. The angels appear before man and they're praising God. And throughout scripture, there is a self-evident theme of angels often often, uh, praising the Lord and giving him worship. And here's, here's the takeaway here today. The angels' praise and adoration towards God about the birth of Jesus is a model for what our attitude should be towards Christ Jesus. Angels praising God is a model for you and I. Did you know that you and I stand in a more privileged position than angels? You and I stand in a more privileged place than angelic beings. You see, when we read scripture, when an angel sins, when an angel falls, they are automatically condemned. Judgment happens, but man sins and God sends a savior to redeem us. And we could go through the scriptures that talk about how angels look at you and I. And you know what scripture says? They marvel that we blow their minds. You and I stand in a more privileged position than angelic beings should our praise not be that much greater. Should our praise not be that much more undignified and passionate? And yet, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, because of an attitude, we often align ourselves more with Herod than we do with angels. Completely missing the point. Herod had the opportunity to kneel down before the king. I mean, come on, Herod, you could have been friends with him. You could have been friends with Jesus. You could have worked together. And yet because of insecurity, because of an attitude, Herod resents him. You know, there's different sayings that talk about how it was safer to be a pig than Herod's mother. Because Herod was so mentally, I mean, just unstable and paranoid that he would kill off his own family members to guarantee that they never took the throne. Herod has this attitude and completely misses the opportunity to kneel down before a Savior. You and I become a lot like Herod whenever we withhold our worship from Jesus because of an attitude. I don't feel like it today, Pastor. It's snowing. Rather be in Florida. Who are we to withhold our praise from the one that time bows before? 
Who are we to withhold the one from the Messiah that was prophesied for thousands of years and he's arrived? Who are we to withhold? Who are we to become more like Herod when God has called us to become more like him? Worship team, would you come? The shocking thing about Herod is that he knew what the right response would be if the Savior did indeed arrive, and yet he rejected what he knew was right. Allow me to explain. He said it. He gave himself away in Matthew chapter 2, verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem, said, go search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. But here's where Herod acknowledges his own failure so that I too may go and worship him. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew that the proper response to the, to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to God's one and only Son, he knew that the proper response would be worship. The proper response to Jesus was, is, and will always be worship. I hope that our hearts would be a little bit more like the angels rather than Herod when we have the opportunity to encounter the presence of Jesus. And you and I have the opportunity to encounter the presence of Jesus on a week-to-week, daily, hourly, minute, every second of the day basis. You have that privilege right here, right now. You have the privilege to experience Jesus and let me, let me kind of hit the pause button for a moment. Like sometimes I, I've grown up in church long enough to understand that sometimes in a church context, we say things that I call, that my family calls, my wife and I call Christianese. Christianese. And that's another way of saying insider language. We're like, we use these different statements that in, in the church walls, they make sense. You say these statements to a gas station attendant and they're going to look at you like you're crazy. And one of those statements that sometimes comes out that we don't really define is whenever we say, like, as, or ask the question, do you want to experience the presence of Jesus? Or we'll pray, more presence, Lord Jesus. And to those who don't know Jesus, they might not understand that. So let me just kind of level the playing field today. What are we talking about when we say you can experience the presence of Jesus here today? When we talk about more of his presence, what exactly are we saying? What we are saying is you can experience God. And it's not really that complicated in explaining. It's just kind of like this, like right here, right now, whether you like it or not, you're experiencing the person next to you for better or for worse. Couples who sit together in church, stay together, by the way. And so you're experiencing others here today. You're experiencing what it's like to be next to them. You know that they're there. You can have a conversation with them and you're gonna come to experience their personality, are you not? You're going to experience what they're like, their dislikes. You know, when my, when my wife and I were dating, our dates were all about presence of one another, experiencing one another's likes and dislikes, and experiencing what it's like to stand before one another. And it's the same thing in our relationships, our friendships, and it's the same thing with God. 
When we say the presence of God, we mean that a supernatural occurrence happens where God reveals himself that he's here in our midst and he reveals himself in such a way that your heart senses this that there's something different about this moment and your brain tries to make sense of it and your brain will actually like lie to you it'll say this is just emotion this this is all just show but then your spirit is constantly wanting to lean into this saying there's something happening the brain tries to make sense of it and can I just tell you like emotions wear off Jesus doesn't like when you open yourself up to him like you just always know that you know that he's here it's deeper than emotions and so when you and I call on the presence of God he begins to reveal himself and what that means is just like you are sitting next to somebody today experiencing them you begin to experience God himself you begin to experience conviction. Things that you've done that you knew were wrong, you know are wrong. I don't even have to list them because they're coming to memory right now. You begin to sense conviction. In God's presence, you begin to sense just this love, this I know that God has created me for a purpose bigger than, than sucking air. He's put me here on this earth for a bigger purpose than my nine to five job. And you just kind of sense all of these things in his presence. This is what Herod rejected. And this is what you have the opportunity to embrace. Right here today, you have the opportunity to embrace his presence and who he is. Would you stand with me, church? I'm going to ask every head be bowed and every eye closed. And first and foremost, I want to ask this question. I want to ask you first, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Have you experienced Jesus without anybody looking around? Because like this is between you and God and we believe that everybody has a right to privacy in this holy and sacred moment. And I, I don't want you looking at the person to your left and to your right because God's talking to you. Not them right now, well maybe in their own way, but you. They can't respond for you in this moment, only you can. And I wanna ask you, do you know him? Have you experienced God? Have you looked at all of the facts surrounding the arrival, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and come to the only logical conclusion that he is son of God, he is Lord, he is Emmanuel, God with us? Have you put your faith in him? Is your eternity set? That you know if you were to die today that you would be welcomed into his presence and in eternity in heaven. Because friend, I, I want to be honest with you here today. I, 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 I want to be honest in this moment. That if Jesus is who he said he is, we believe that there's enough evidence and experience saying, yeah, he, he is who he said he is. And if heaven is for real, that 
the other logical conclusion is that hell is a very real place. And if you don't know him, then hell is a very real concern. And I tell you this because I love you, and, and, and this is just, it has to be a part of the conversation. If we're acknowledging Jesus being a reality, and heaven being reality, and eternity being reality, then hell must be one. But you and I don't have to fear hell if we know Jesus. And the most beautiful thing about this is you and I don't have to wait till eternity to experience his presence. You can experience him. You're supposed to experience him here and now on earth. So without anybody looking around, I want to ask this this question. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you if you want an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus and experience Jesus and follow Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And please understand, when that happens, when you, if you do decide to raise your hand and accept that invitation, you're not accepting an invitation to become a member here. You're not going to be called out. I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to put the microphone in your face. We're not going to embarrass you. You raising a hand just simply lets me know who I'm talking to. That's all. So I want to ask a question. Is there anyone here today that you say, I, I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to follow him. If that's you, would you just slip a hand up in the air and put it right back down? I see your hands. You can put them right back down. I see your hands. You can put them right back down. Is there anyone else? Say, Pastor, I, I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. I want to experience his presence. I don't want to experience missing it like King Herod. Is there anybody else here today who say, I want to put my faith in Jesus and follow him? And here's what I'm going to ask. For those who raise their hands, please understand that I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to, ask you to repeat a prayer. And please understand that it's not my words that matter. It's your heart. So if you mess up the words, it's all good. If your heart truly means repentance, turning away from sin and pursuing God with your whole life, that's what matters. But please also understand that you could say this prayer a thousand times, and if you don't mean it with your heart, it's not going to save you. So with that understanding, I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer after me and engage your heart. And for the rest of the church, I'm going to ask you to join in. Would you repeat after me, dear Jesus? Oh, come on, church. Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. Help me to be pure and set apart. Help me to live for you. I put my faith and trust in you. I put my past and my present and my future in your hands. I recognize you as Lord. Jesus' name. Amen. Would you give it up for those who've received Christ for the first time? Hallelujah. And as we head towards our sixth and final closing today, for the rest of us that have already received Jesus and you're kind of like, where's this leave me? This Christmas, let us be a church that pursues his presence. Come on, somebody that pursues his presence daily. My heart is so, like, I wish that I could just, like, package this up and just, here you go, open it. But 
you've got to do the work. You've got to do the crying out to Jesus. Well, how will I know whenever like I'm experiencing him? Oh, you'll know. cracks me up when some guys are like, why am I crying? He just has a way of doing that to us. When you sense God's love, you know. And I promise you, you'll never be the same. So for the rest of the church, would you join me once more? Would you close your eyes? And I'm going to ask, if you're new with us, a part of the reason why we lift our hands in the air is it's an outward, um, uh, an outward symbol of an inward experience. Inwardly, we're saying, Jesus, take my life. And we're just showing it with our hands. There's just something about, you know, surrendering to the Lord that is very profound. I can't explain it. You just got to experience it. So if you're comfortable, would you just extend your hands hands up high and just begin to invite his presence in your life. Would you, in your own words, if you want to experience God's presence here today, in your own words, would you just begin to verbalize, vocalize and say, Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you begin to reveal yourself to me? I don't just want to hear about your presence like Herod. I don't just want to hear about your presence arriving somewhere else. I want to experience it. I want to experience standing next to you. Would you just begin to call on his presence, church, in your own words? And I'm going to ask the worship team to sing this song. It's very simple. It says, worthy is your name. And let's just answer the call that Hark the Herald Angel sings, demands of us here today. Let's answer the call that the arrival of our Savior demands of us. And that response is simply worship. The season and the message demand a response. What will yours be? Will yours be along the lines of the shepherds and the wise men who gathered around the presence of the Lord? Or will yours be like Herod, hearing and knowing the right response but rejecting? I hope and pray that it's the former. Church, would you worship with me? Can we go all in today? Is that okay? As we close out today's service, can, can we go all in in our worship? Come on, somebody. Worship team, would you lead us? Hallelujah.
Jesus. Soften our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts so that we don't become a Herod. Soften our hearts, Lord Jesus. We don't want to miss the point this Christmas. We don't want to miss the point in your arrival. So dear Heavenly Father, as we prepare to leave this place here today, may we not just be those who come and experience your presence, but may we be carriers of your presence, taking the reality of you being so real and so loving and so awesome and so relationship-driven. Lord, help us to take that reality to the world around us. Let us be a generation that is after your presence, God. Let us be a generation that seeks your presence daily. Let us be a generation. Every time we're gathered together as the body of Christ, your bride, may we be a generation, Lord, that seeks your face. May we be a generation that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And God, may we be a generation, again, that doesn't just know about your presence, but may we be a generation that takes your presence into the darkest places so that the light of Christ may be seen. Now, Lord, as we leave this place here today, may everything that we say and everything that we do be an example of you. May it be an example of your grace and your mercy that is represented in the manger. May may it be an example, Lord Jesus, of how wonderful and how awesome you are. Help us, God, to be carriers of your presence this Christmas season. We ask in Jesus' precious and holy name. And if you believe he's faithful to do it, would you give him one more shout of praise this morning, church? Hallelujah. Amen, amen, amen. This has been an audio recording from Crossroads Community Church. If you'd like to get in contact with us or learn more about us, you can follow us on social media at C3Lehigh or email us at info at C3Lehigh.com. We'd love to hear from you.